Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today I'm going deep with CPG legend Mike Fada, a man with three successful nine-figure exits, including the $419 million sale of his company Manitoba Harvest in 2019. This conversation flowed like the amber hemp fields as we harvested insights like how a branding change took Mike's company from $10 million to $100 million quickly, the critical importance of telling your story and building in public in the CPG game in 2022 and beyond, the who not how guide to growing your team and the biggest mistakes Mike sees in people's hiring processes. Hope you enjoy. On with the show. Cash is always king in business in recessionary times for sure. The worst case scenario coming into a recession is even for a high growth company, for them to be burning a tremendous amount of capital and then not have an opportunity to raise capital in front of them. They could have a great product, have a great business and fail just for that reason. If you're well prepared and you're well capitalized, now is the time to double down. Like in 2008, you're that $10 million business. We just raised like $3 million of venture capital because we had a good sound structure to our business. Our competitors couldn't raise capital. We outcompeted them just because we had capital. We had a longer runway. We could take some risks. And after two years of the recession, we were literally years ahead of our competitors and there was no chance for them to catch up. Doubling down in the recessionary time was the game changer. Are you ready to grow your audience and revenue? Send in Blue is a multi-channel marketing platform that empowers businesses to create stronger customer relationships. Create personalized emails, captivating SMS campaigns, chat, custom landing pages, quick sign-up forms, automated workflows, and more instantly. Curious to learn more? Sign up today at sendinblue.com forward slash DTC and enter promo code DTC to get one month free on a premium plan. Do it all with Send in Blue. Welcome, Mike. It's great to have you on. Can you just give people a little bit of your uh, your hero's journey in this space? I think probably a lot of people know you, but it'd be great for those who don't to hear a little bit about uh, your journey. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, I grew up uh, poor with a single mom and dropped out of school when I was 13, so started working pretty young, um, but found my passion for health after I lost 100 pounds uh, when I was a teenager and, and got into the hemp food business. And we were one of the first uh, companies really to commercialize hemp foods and over 20 years, grew that business from zero to 100 million bucks. And then we sold it a couple of times, but the last time in, in 2019 for a $400 million transaction. And that's kind of the uh, the big part of my hero's journey, I guess. But, uh, you know, life continues on. And now I'm uh, investing, advising, coaching, mentoring, uh, writing a book, a whole bunch of things now. But uh, that's kind of the after the uh, business success. So cool. I'm I'm so curious. Like I know you're still really in the CPG game, investing, advising, as you say. I've got your midday squares gear on, which is great to see. Um, you know, I'm curious. When did this the ascendance happen? When did the bulk of the years happen? Over what years? And we started the we started Mantua Harvest in 1998, um, and it took five years to reach our first million in sales, and then another five years to hit 10 million. So by 2008, we were doing about 10 million in revenue, and then. From 2008 to 2018, we grew uh, 10 million bucks a year. That, that was probably the uh, the vertical and the J curve uh, started in 2008, 2009, right through the you know the recession, which was a testament to what we were really building and and the the innovation that we really were offering to people. What were the biggest factors in those hyper growth years starting in 2008? Was it social media? Was it you know what was that? 
Yeah, a couple things. We did a we did a rebrand. Uh, we used to, you know, our flagship product was hemp hearts. So hopefully, people have eaten hemp hearts. It's the soft inner kernel or the heart of the hemp seed. And when we first launched it, we were calling it shelled hemp seeds. Um, that's what the product is, you know. And and then as we went through a, a branding exercise, and it was like, oh, hemp hearts is just a, a much better way to to describe it, and it's a lot more catchy. So um, we we just finished a full rebranding exercise to hemp hearts. And then things just took off. The stores that we were in and online sales just just grew, you know, the velocity like two, three X. Uh, and then a lot more mainstream stores uh, decided that they were ready to finally carry the products after 10 years of kind of marketing them. So Costco was a big uh, customer, Walmart. And and uh, and so we really expanded the distribution. But I think it was all on product positioning, really. Uh, and at the same time, like consumers started to wake up to uh, to, to the health benefits of, of including hemp foods into their diet. And you had a good solid 10 years of trials and tribulations to be ready for that, right? Like if you were starting in 2008, there's no way you'd be ready to capitalize the way you did. For sure. I mean, I always talk about preparedness as an entrepreneur and, and we were well prepared being 10 years into the business, had just expanded our manufacturing facility by like five times capacity and, and started growing our team and making venture uh, and, and had venture capital investment, uh, which, you know, into that recession, our competitors that didn't have any money um, really failed. A lot of them failed. And because we had financing and, and capital, we could keep growing right through the recession. What an amazing branding story. I had never heard that before about the hemp hearts industry. I remember when hemp hearts became a thing and I was like, oh, is this a new thing that people are? I remember them at Costco. I was probably your brand. And it's just by repositioning that essential aspect to something way more palatable and interesting and memorable. It just took the market by storm. That's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, it, hemp hearts meant a lot of things to people, right? Like heart healthy or, or, or hearts are warming. Like it, it gave us a tremendous ability to communicate to our consumers uh, in a fun and playful way and, and, uh, and, and in a lot of different mediums. So same product inside and just uh, positioning different on the outside. So did you coin that? Did your company coin that coin hemp hearts? We actually, there was a competitor that did, um, but didn't trademark it. And so we... We declared that hemp hearts were um, just a new way to say shelled hemp seed, so it became a, a commodity from a trademark standpoint. And then we created a the hemp heart brand mark, which was a, a double overlapping heart. Um, and and because we had the distribution with you know sixteen thousand uh, retail store partners, um, we 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 beat out the competition because we had already you know, we already had that Manitoba Harvest brand ex- uh, established. And but it was you know I watched the competitor kind of. F- launder and not trademark it. And I was like, oh, we got to jump all over this. After living through those hyper growth years and now working with brands that are trying to do this, you know, tell the same story uh, 10 years later, what are some of the biggest things that have changed in the CPG environment from your perspective? Oh, a tremendous amount. You know, when we started uh, the business, we were getting the, the fax was still popular, right? The internet was just just starting out. Uh, no social media, obviously. Nowadays, like it's all about social media and storytelling is the is the best way to grow your brand. Like we uh, still for food products, it's I, I believe it's important uh, being in the food space to you got to get your product into people's mouths. So like sampling and demoing and doing shows and events where you can actually demo and sample product to people is important. Um, but being able to communicate even how good your product tastes, but for sure, like why you're in the business and and that storytelling aspect, um, that's just a fundamental now. And and, and it wasn't uh, it was it was big big advertising, um, you know, for the first 
15 years in, that, that I was in business was the way it was done. And, and, uh, and now that you could, you could shoot all your marketing and, and on your iPhone and, and just tell a great story and you're going to, and including personal branding into that story. And, uh, and that's the way to do it nowadays. Yeah, I, I see it. It's really a big melting pot with the brands that do it best. Like what I find most interesting as someone who's building a marketing education company, you know, this marketing media company, I love the fact that so many consumers are interested in the business stories of the people who create these products. And it sort of, to me, signals a bit of a sea change of people just becoming more interested in this kind of enterprise. So when I see brand owners like Midday Squares out there, you know, doing their mini documentaries about getting sued by Hershey's or whatever, uh, and how important that personal business brand also becomes can be used also towards the consumer I guess there's two sides of it there's the passion about your product and here's why I made this product but there is that other business store side story as well which I think people are drawn to I've, I've seen it coming and that's why you know when I met the MDS crew besides you know great product and great people I could see that the world was going to wake up to their type of marketing and and uh, so I've been singing the gospel on that one for the last couple of years before before a lot of people woke up and saw what MDS is, is going to do. But that goes back to like, think about the last, over the last decade, you know, reality TV shows are what dominated media. Like people want to see other people and learn from other people and hear the stories, the good, the bad, like how, to, you know, how things are made or, or how it's built. You know, all those shows is, uh, is what really grabs people's attention. Um, they want to be behind the scenes. And, and, uh, and I think, being authentic with that and being open as an entrepreneur to share really sets you up uh, for success. Look at the the Marshmallow Co. that I had on the podcast at a small storefront um, marshmallow business. He started doing visual ASMR in his factories about how this product was made, what it looks like when you stretch it out with a whole tray of marshmallows and you put it in a microwave or whatever. And there are hundreds of millions of views in now and they've a thousand X their business from their storefront. They're shipping internationally. And so that opportunity across all platforms to storytell across like LinkedIn, across TikTok, across, you know, the, the, it can be overwhelming, I imagine, for, for businesses to think about how they're actually going to tell this story effectively while still building their business. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One, uh, um, a lot of entrepreneurs have a roadblock where they don't believe their story is interesting. And I, I don't believe that. I think every, I think consumers are interested in every story, whether that's like how a toilet breaks and gets fixed. You, you could educate people on that. Like think about the best salesman. If you're going out to buy a new microwave or a dishwasher or a, or a car, it's all about how they educate you by telling you a story, right? So a lot of entrepreneurs get in their own way by thinking, oh, my story is not, you, no one's interested in my story. But from there, you, there's work to do, right? You have to set yourself up for success. Like, you know, Midday Squares, their first employee was a videographer to capture everything. And so you have to understand the aspects of storytelling and copywriting and, and, uh, and be able to shoot and edit. Uh, it doesn't need to be fancy though, you know, um, but you know, you do need to have some of that skill set built into your business. We reference it on the podcast all the time, but this idea that the brands of the future will also be media companies in a way, right? So whether it's brands looking to acquire media companies and blogs or create this content themselves, it's just a, a required opportunity that we just need to look at like as, as these businesses grow in the next few years. We're living in the uh, attention economy, right? Uh, and so you got to get people's attention if you're a brand awareness generation for your brand trial for your brand are, are key and, and, uh, and the lowest cost way to do that is to produce your own media. Are things harder now than they were then? Like there's a lot of factors, right? There's the internet is, you know, creates better chances for marketing than you had. There's probably way more competition than you face now. How do you view it in terms of like, is it any harder or easier to do it now than when you did it? For sure, it's harder now. I give you a couple examples. Like in the product business, if you made a great product and you innovated and you created something brand new, you used to have 
a year, maybe two years of runway um, before people caught on. Why? Because there wasn't social sharing. Um, there was less data uh, available as well. And so you just fly under the radar and you could kind of grow. Nowadays, you create something that's awesome and you start, especially as you start sharing about it, like within a month or two, you're going to have competitors already that are, that are copying you, right? Um, sometimes that copying can elevate the lead brand. It usually does. There's usually like, you know, one or two uh, main horses in the race. But if you're what I call a me too product, like a, the 10th cold brew coffee or, you know, you're in trouble, like it, because there's so much competition nowadays and, and you're likely going to be outcompeted. Here's another question too. Do you think, are things democratizing or consolidating or both in the CPG space? It depends on the geography and, and, and maybe even the category of, uh, of product. Um, through recessionary times, which we're going into, I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation or just, or just failure, right? Um, because that example of like 10 different coconut oil products or 10 different cold brew coffees, there's no space for it in the recession. In, in a growing time, uh, maybe there is, and there's still investment dollars for those type of businesses. There's still extra shelf space for those type of businesses. But uh, uh, when things get tight um, and we're moving into that time, and I think the next several years are going to be tight, reminds me of 2008, 2009 kind of time all over again. You're either going to get consolidated and, and companies come together uh, is their only way to survive or, or a lot of them are, are going to die. And they'll need those direct, like if they're relying just kind of on being a Me Too product in the system, I imagine there's still, for, for brands that really have a great connection to an audience through other channels and, you know, I guess they're no longer a Me Too brand if they have an amazing community, I guess is the way to put it. But I feel like brands that have established that great community, there's still that opportunity to, like there's more there's more opportunity than ever for decentralization, for you to have your little corner of, of the audience that you've carved off, right? Yeah, I think, well, we're living in the omni-channel uh, time, right? So it's not about, um, oh, am I a direct-to-consumer brand? A lot of direct-to-consumer brands now are, are realizing, oh, I, I need some other sales channels, right? Like a, a brick and mortar might not be so bad, or or even companies that are in brick and mortar that are now launching their own site uh, or, or their own sales so that they can appeal to their target customers. It's that diversification if you're, and, and being able to sell omni-channel, like do well on your own, do, sell it through Amazon and the resellers, do brick and mortar, maybe starting out locally um, in your in your home territory. And and, uh, and then you're a, you're a multi-legged stool. You know, it's hard to kick, harder to kick you over for, for you to fail that way. Speaking of the recession, so, you know, we're not, somehow we're not in a recession already, but every person I talk to is, you know, feeling it and expectation recession usually causes recession. So pretty much safe to say we're in a recession here. What, what's your top advice for your portfolio brands? Like, what are you really emphasizing with your portfolio brands kind of heading into 2023 and, and the recession? Yeah, well, cash is always king in business uh, or king or queen, but uh, in recessionary times, for sure, it, it, you know, so you can't, you can't run out of cash um, and, and your, your cash runway, your ability to raise capital if you need to, like, uh, you know, the worst case scenario coming into a recession is even for a high growth company for them to be burning a tremendous amount of capital and then, and then not have an opportunity to raise capital in front of them. They could fail. They could have a great product, have a great business and fail just for that reason. So I think getting, getting more responsible with your, uh, with your budget and your P and L is, is the best way to, uh, to combat that and, and then shore up your, your next kind of round of investment or, or make sure that you have a long runway. And when I say long runway, I generally like to think about like 18 to 24 months of runway for high growth brands. And, and I wouldn't want to be, um, wouldn't want to be existing in a business with less than that in a recessionary time. 
These days, it's expensive to get shoppers to your store, so when they do show up, you want to make the most of each order. Thankfully, there's Aftersell Post-Purchase Upsell, the most popular upsell app on Shopify. With Aftersell, you can create targeted, on-brand post-purchase offers that maximize your AOV. Trusted by over 6,000 merchants, including hundreds of Shopify Plus stores like Brewmate, True Classic Tees, and Good American, Aftersell has generated over $50 million in revenue for their merchants. We've partnered with Aftersell to create a special offer for DTC listeners. Visit aftersell.com slash DTC for a 10% off lifetime subscription to Aftersell and white glove support for Plus merchants. On top of that, there's a 30-day free trial, so there's zero risk to installing. That's aftersell.com slash DTC. Anything else that you're looking for or really urging people to uh, to focus on? You know, just focus on the differentiation because you, you, you don't want to be selling a commodity in, in a recession. Your your gross margin and, and your profitability is really going to suffer. Uh, it's going to be challenged a lot more um, just because of the economic situation. It's funny, as as someone who's partnered with an agency, we're always uh, promoting content. And there's no shortage of it, of people that will say that, you know, spending into recessions is often the way to go. And historically, when you look back, when Kellogg's pulled the reins on certain products, other products took over during these, you know, took over mindshare. Like, I guess it's totally specific on one's cash position and all these things. But do you, do you see these times also as that opportunity to gain market share against other people that are timid? 100%. Yeah. No, I, I so I... If you're well prepared and you're and you're well capitalized, now is the time to double down. Like in 2008, 2009, um, we were that 10 million dollar business. We just raised like three million dollars of, of venture capital um, because we had a good sound structure to our business. Our competitors couldn't raise capital. Uh, we outcompeted them just because we had capital. We had a longer runway. We could we could take some risks um, on on some new product development, on some new customer uh, distribution. And after kind of two years of the recession, um, we were years, literally years ahead of our competitors, and, and there was no chance for them to catch up. When you fast forward then to when Mantua Harvest was a $100 million business, our largest competitor was like in single digit millions, like five, six, seven million. And that, uh, that doubling down in the recessionary time was the game changer. Are you enjoying your post-acquisition uh, life more or less than the hustle of building such a big company? More, for sure. You know, I... I, I Sometimes I miss having like one brand to wear on my sleeve, you know, but uh, the thing is, uh, and it's been three years. So now I have 10 uh, companies in my portfolio. I'm active in, in half of them as a, as a board member, as an advisor, but I'm a recovering entrepreneur. I've operated a business for 20 years. We grew it from zero to hundred million bucks, had a couple hundred uh, team members. It, like it's, it's a lot of stress. And now, um, I don't have that stress. I can't have that stress. You know, I want to have more fun in business. I like being involved in the strategy and the team building in the growth. Um, but I, I don't want to uh, have all my eggs in one basket, that feeling of like, oh, if the business struggles, I'm in a struggle spot. Uh, I've lived that already. And I feel very fortunate, you know, some of my mentors um, that I watch be successful uh, and then transition more into that investor advisor, um, coach, mentor, we're in their 60s, you know, and I can do that in my 40s. And, and so I feel like I'm in a spot where hopefully I, I have another 40, 50 years of, of being able to, to do the same thing. You mentioned team building, and I saw you actually tweeted about this recently. And you know, one of the most influential books uh, before uh, started the D 2 C business was "Who Not How," which is this idea of you're trying to figure out how to solve problems. It could be really tough problems. The best solution is often finding someone who's already done it, bring them on board. You know, I look at my team of fifteen now, and and some of the, the people we've been able to bring in. You know, hiring has been a huge, huge part of our growth. What are some things that you see people kind of? don't pay enough attention to or make mistakes in the hiring process when building their teams? 
Yeah, and not having a plan. I just put it out. You're, you're right. I put it out on LinkedIn, you know, because I struggled through it myself. I made wrong hires just because I didn't have a good enough system for hiring. And so clearly identifying what you need in your hire, what position you're hiring for, writing a very, I'll call it an A-plus job description so that you detail all the duties um, that, that that person is going to uh, be doing, but more so like what is the competencies and experience that they need to be successful in that. And then run a really good interview process, like have a questionnaire developed so that you know exactly the questions that you're going to ask it. And it's very different than if you're hiring for a vice president of marketing or you're, or you're hiring for someone in finance to test those competencies and experience. Nowadays, especially in a venture stage of growth of businesses, I like bringing people onto the team that have done it before, because I believe, you know, if you've done it before, you're more likely to be able to do it again. Uh, and even great people that have done great things, if they haven't done it before, i.e. you're in Canada and you're going into the U.S. market, but you're, you're hiring someone that doesn't have U.S. market experience, more likely going to have a chance to fail. So, you know, make questions so you understand when you're interviewing someone, you could really test that. Uh, and then from there, like scorecard it and, and, uh, and make sure that as you're putting the hiring documents together and your bonus incentive documents together, they all align to the goals that need to be accomplished. That, that's your biggest, uh, best chance at a success. One thing that we always do in the hiring process as well is like a, a project, like a, whether, you know, if it's a project where we're getting them to do a fair amount of work, we'll offer to pay for it. But like we get them to do a project that's sort of like, with as much information as we've published out there, we're like review some of our stuff and get a sense of, of handling this project. Basically, we actually look for a completion on that. Is that did you ever employ that? Yeah, I think it's smart. It, ha it happens a lot in marketing, right? In marketing, you're, you're, you know, when we hire executives, we ask the executive like, hey, what does a 90-day plan look like if you're the head of sales or head of marketing? What would you do? And, and you could tell by executives that can put a, a, a quarter plan or a 90-day plan together, you could, you could see their thought process, their, you know, uh, and but in marketing, like if you're a video editor, like hey, show uh, show us one of your best video edits, or uh, if it's copywriting or 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 presentation skills, like yeah, give us an example of that and work through that. I think it's it's really smart because you're you're then you're testing their not only their competency but their experience as well. That they've they've done it before, they're they're going to likely show up and be able to hit the ground running day one when they're in the business. I think of our recent hire we made on the education side of things and how important just the, the title of the job posting is that we originally had like education manager. And so we got a hundred teachers like who'd, who taught lots of, they were great teachers, but we were really looking for someone to build like our digital education program. And so we changed the name to like digital education program lead or whatever. And it just, we got an entirely, the same job description was exactly the same, but we ended up finding several like really interesting candidates that had specifically that kind of, you know, you just have to be very careful when you name things. I'm a stickler and, and it's been part of my success on, uh, on title and compensation that is market, um, grade. So I've done, you know, I, where I see entrepreneurs fail, their first employee is their chief something officer, you know, instead of like, if you're hiring a video editor, make it really clear that it's a video editor. You know, if you're hiring a regional sales manager, don't give them the vice president of sales title just because they're employee or team member number five or six in the business. Got to really understand like what's market for other CPG companies, if that's the space and, and, uh, and then make sure that your title and your position is similar. And, and then also your pay scale, uh, your compensation structure is similar. That's, that's the best way for longevity and having employee relationships that don't, uh, don't turn into a, a shit show in the future. Can you talk a little bit about your investment strategy? I think, you know, the path that you're following is a really desirable one, probably for a lot of people in our audience to have your exit, to move into the, you know, a place where you can apply your genius, you know, spread your genius across multiple areas and have impact on a lot of businesses in the areas that you want to have, you know, impact on. Can you describe a little bit about what goes into your strategy when it comes to investing? 
So I've, I've really highly simplified this. Uh, you know, it, it really goes down to a product that I like to consume and I consume it on a regular basis and, uh, and then people that I like to hang out with. So it starts with those two fundamentals because I believe if you've made a good product and it's good people involved, you have a great potential out of business. The other fundamentals of the business need to be there, like uh, you know, good gross margins and, and growth opportunity in the business. But I, I would start with those two, and and then just from a scale standpoint, I really, you know, when I when we were at a hundred million dollar business, I was like, I, you know, I, I got to get off this ride. It's not, it's not, um, it's more of a grind. It's less entrepreneurship at that scale. But get off and go down the escalator to like the ten million dollar mark, and uh, and because I've done that ten to hundred million dollar journey, I think that's where where it makes sense to play. So I'm not an angel investor. I don't I don't invest in startups because I know the challenges of of startup, and I don't want to be involved in those challenges. I've been involved for long enough. But if you get to a ten million dollar business, that's really about the time that makes sense to um, invest and build a, a what I call a million dollar senior management team, and and really lay the foundation for for that next scale scale of growth. So uh, all the businesses in my portfolio would be in that, you know, if not 10, at least five going to $10 million space and, and, uh, and great product and, and then great people that I'll literally have over from my house for dinner and be able to just sit and strategize with, like I want to hang out with them. And consumables. Are you generally, do you want to stay in consumables and sort of in the CPG consumable space? Yeah, I, I'd say that's my lane. You know, I, I'm a, because of my, um, because of my hundred pound weight loss and my now 25 years into health and, and health and wellness is my lifestyle. And so the natural and organic product industry is my, is my lane. I get pitched all the time for all these other kind of investments. And I'm like, that's a great company. That's a great idea. That's a great investment. I just don't know enough about it or actually care enough about it that I, I would, I would want to spend time there, you know? And so going back to like, products that I have in my house, if, if I'm eating a product or using a product on a regular basis, but I know, oh, a lot of the world doesn't know this yet. Like that midday squares example, again, I met them, I tried the product. I was like, these are phenomenal. I'm never eating any other chocolate again, besides midday squares. And I believe that the more, the more awareness that the brand generated, other people were going to feel the same way because the product was just that good. And then obviously Les, Jake and Nick are, are just crazy entrepreneurs that I want to hang out with and strategize with and, and play together and not, never mind, you know, build business. And I think the, the, that's what kind of sets it up. So yeah, I generally all 10 of my companies are, are in the natural and organic products industry. And then are you still in the coaching side of things? I think, I think it's coaching is such an interesting space as well. I think, I think it's probably really underused. It's, I, it's probably used by people in our industry more than uh, a lot of other industries, but I still probably think it's underused. Can you talk a little bit that, about that side? Yeah, well, you know, I've had, um, kind of COVID uh, stirred all this stuff up. Like I used to love trade shows and go around and a lot of my relationships were at trade shows, whether it was um, that I was mentoring people and I could help them out by, you know, uh, sharing information or, or, or introductions and relationships. But kind of COVID took, I took to social media to kind of fill that trade show gap. And, uh, and then I started reaching out to all these founders, you know, again, mostly in the natural and organic product space and, and then offering my time. Like sometimes it was, it was like a 20 or 30 minute uh, chat and understand where their business is at. And then, and then, tell them what I would do if I was in their situation or how it could be helpful to them. So there's been like a thousand conversations I've had uh, literally in the, uh, uh, in, in the last two and a half years. And, and, uh, and then I had these requests from people like, Hey, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to spend more time with you. And I was like, well, I have a portfolio of companies that, you know, when I'm invested in a company and, and I'm on their board or I'm an advisor to them, there's a certain amount of, uh, hours in or days per year that I help those companies and strat planning and, and the things that, uh, you know, advisement to them. People wanted to kind of one off, and 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 uh, and so yeah. Just in the last couple months, I, I put together uh, a business uh, nine figure growth coaching because you know I have uh, three su successful nine figure exits, and I and I believe I can offer in in a one hour time slot 
uh, helping entrepreneurs get their growth vision straight. Um, and, uh, and so I've been doing that and ha- I have fun with it, you know, and, um, it's easy. So people can go and uh, sign up on my website and, and, uh, and book an hour and, uh, and the testimonials are already there because it just, because I've been there before, I'm coming from a place of operations. Like I built the business. Uh, I find it, it's usually helpful for entrepreneurs that are, that are lacking some of the vision because they're growing into a territory that's unfamiliar to them. You mentioned three nine-figure ex- exits. Are those two also in your within your portfolios, or are those three all three your own variations within the same? I had so two at Manitoba Harvest. We sold Manitoba Harvest twice. The first time, a hundred thirty-two million dollar transaction, and then two thousand nineteen, a four hundred nineteen million dollar transaction. Uh, but then one of my my first portfolio investments, uh, Soul Cuisine, uh, which is one of the oldest plant-based protein companies in in Canada. Uh, I joined. Uh, I invested and joined the board as chairman of the board in in. Um, in 2018, and uh, within three years, we we tripled that business, and uh, and then we just we sold it in February of this year for a 125 million dollar uh, transaction, and so I I feel like you know I know what a good successful nine figure exit what a company needs to get to and be in our industry to to achieve that, and and I'm confident that I have you know five or six companies in my portfolio right now uh, that will do that, including Midday Squares. They're 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 already almost there, but uh, you know growing the business and then and growing that team, growing the business and getting to a place where a strategic acquirer wants to buy that business. Uh, I feel that that's part of my expertise. You've got quite a good hit rate. You're like the Rick Rubin of uh, CPG startups. It looks, it sounds like that's, that's just tremendous, man. A lot of passion, you know, entrepreneurship is a lifestyle and I, and I've taken it really seriously. I have fun with it. I, I, and I'd say nowadays I can't turn that shit off, you know, like yeah. it, it's, it's really recovering strat planning and, and, uh, and what's the next step and who do you need to know and what's the questions you need to ask and like what, what's standing in the way of the business growth. Like that, that's what my brain is thinking about all the time. Any predictions for the future of the CPG space and based on the way that you see things going now, say like, you know, 10 years in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some trends that are longstanding, especially as it relates to kind of like food and ingestibles, like uh, need states are just continue to get stronger. So you'll see trends like um, low sugar, uh, high protein, uh, things that boost your immune system, um, you know, that, that, that are just going to continue on, um, which means like, you know, what does that look like in a product? A reinvention of a, of a cult classic, right? Uh, and we've seen that kind of like with a magic spoon or even Midday Squares is that example, right? Make a, make a chocolate, uh, a healthier version of, of a chocolate bar that's made with all these poor ingredients. So it tastes better and, and it's better for you. I think, I think we're going to see a lot of that. And, and, and those are longstanding trends that a decade from now, it will still be in the, in the same space. They have that great David and Goliath story where they, you know, they literally, they made it, went after the peanut butter cup and their orange was a little too close to Hershey's orange. But I love that sort of like, you know, that us versus them mentality that you see forming with upstart brands and incumbents, but it's probably a bit of an illusion, right? Because everyone's sort of, everyone's, everyone's on the same playing field to some extent. I think that's what's very interesting about the way things have evolved is the, the playing field. It has become possible for incumbents to come in and make those bold challenges, right? That just would be difficult. Yeah, for sure. I think you'll see it across, uh, you'll see it across every category. Some categories have already been done, but like the Pop-Tart's going to be reinvented and, and someone's going to do that really well. You know, there's some organic versions there's some other, there's some ones already but like some people want that with lower sugar and and uh, and higher nutrients and and no preservatives and stuff that they can eat every day like when they're a kid and, and and just think about kind of that in each different product category both in food but also in in kind of cosmetics and other products they're all going to be redone more and more i believe for the kind of health of the consumer in in mind and the simplicity of the consumer in mind we're kind of going backwards right we're like making it 
like it would be made in the old days uh, before kind of big big food and 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 big CPG decided to uh, make it all about profit and and just make shitty ingredients and and uh, and not not care really about the long term impact on the on their consumers' health. I see that being a big trend. The other, I, I think of Red Bull and Liquid Death that are literally. Their their CPG products second and their media companies first in a lot of ways, right? Where they're literally selling canned tin tinned water and sugar serum with some caffeine in it, and yet they're these you know globally attention omnipresent brands because of how well they've created uh, that attention economy with their brands. I think that's going to be a huge trend. Yeah, for sure. And you know, Mr. Beast would be another example, you know, creator of like, hey, got such a following that you know, they sell burgers. Yeah, okay. Sell chocolate. Yeah, okay. Well, what else can you sell? You you got you got the attention of the consumer. You make a good product. You're gonna you're gonna be able to sell that out. So I, there is that. I think there. I think the monetization of of creators is now happening in the whether in partnership with uh, CPG companies or you know, launching CPG companies themselves. I think we're gonna see more of that. Amazing. Mike, thanks for coming on the D2Z podcast today. This was a lot of fun. Uh, if you're not following Mike on LinkedIn, you should look up the Mike Fata, Mike Fata on LinkedIn. That's probably where you're most active, eh? Yeah, I like LinkedIn. I'm on there on, uh, on a daily basis uh, and trying to help share and, uh, and help people grow. I think you'll get some good reach out from this. I think we've got a lot of people on in this sweet spot of like, you know, a couple millions, you know, looking to get to those next plateaus that would love to probably reach out and, and, uh, and chat with you because I think you're an amazing resource in this space. So thanks for all that you do. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.